Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and, and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Cultural, spiritual and social well-being are integral components to Indigenous people who take a holistic approach to mental health. Tailored, community-led approaches have seen huge advances in Indigenous social-emotional well-being and this week we are proud to have with us a leader in the field, Australia's first registered Aboriginal pharmacist, Associate Professor Dr Faye McMillan. Faye is a Wurundjeri Yinya woman, originally from Tarangi, New South Wales. Faye has received numerous accolades for her roles uh, in leadership and contribution to population health, education, equity and the community. In 2019, she was named as the New South Wales Aboriginal Woman of the Year. In 2017, she was recognised as the Who's Who of Australian Women. And in 2014, she was included in the Australian Financial Review and Westpac's Top 100 Women of Influence. Faye holds a Doctor of Health Science, Master of Indigenous Health, Bachelor of Pharmacy, Graduate Certificate Wurundjeri Language, Cultural and Heritage, Graduate Certificate Indigenous Governance, and Graduate Certificate in Education. Quite a mouthful, but she has accomplished a lot. She's a Senior Atlantic Fellow for Social Equity and Founding Member of Indigenous Allied Health Australia. Please welcome and thank for joining me, uh, Dr. Faye McMillan. Hello, podcast listeners, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pebble in the Pond. It gives me great pleasure to introduce to you today, Dr. Faye McMillan. Faye, welcome to the show. Good morning, Sam. Great to be here. Yeah, well, we appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to have a chat with us and, and share your journey and your story with us. Which country do you hail from in Australia? So I'm part of the Wiradjuri Nation, and I'm fortunate to still live and work on Wiradjuri country, so truly blessed to be able to stay connected reading through your bio with all the different things you've been up to. Tell us, and where did the passion start for you to want to get involved with health and well-being for Indigenous people? As a young woman starting in as a shop assistant in the local pharmacy in Trangy, I really enjoyed being able to be connected to people. But it probably wasn't until I actually went to university when I was 27 to start and study pharmacy I actually thought the pharmacist got paid too much money and I was doing his work. So I thought I should become a pharmacist myself. (laughs) Probably not my smartest move, but hey. And it was there as 
a student in a health program. We didn't have any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lecturers. There was one lecture on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, and that was provided by a Pakia from New Zealand, you know, and great lecturer, wonderful human being, but it wasn't from our lens. It didn't have, you know, that lived experience from an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander perspective. So I think that's where it started and I became an accidental academic in the sense of because I was Australia's first um, pharmacist who was Aboriginal. Yes. Um, but I say that as a Western trained because our people had been practising pharmacology and pharmacopoeia and understanding, you know, what was available to to us through our natural environment long before um, yeah. Western pharmacy as we know it today came along. But And so I started to realise that there wasn't that many of us, hence I was first, and that really unsettled me, I think. Now, retrospectively, in the moment, it was just, oh, seriously? Yeah, 20 years on. It's a hard thing to go, okay. I was going to say, I mean, growing up, I think I read that you mentioned somewhere, I mean, the pharmacy at Trungi, that was more than just where, where sick people went, right? And so could you tell us a little bit about that and what that represented? You know, on the main drag in Dandaloo Street, you know, people walked up and down. They'd come in just to tell you, have a bit of a Dory Evans, bit of a chat about what was happening around the town. Did you see the new car in town? And it was a focal point or one of the focal points, fruit and veg shop, bakers, newsagent, that people could come and, I suppose, have a yarn talk as well as come to get pharmaceutical advice, great pharmacist, good relationship with the doctor at the time. Trangie doesn't have a full-time doctor anymore. And, you know, so it really was a central hub. People had come in and buy their gifts. I became really a dab hand at gift wrapping in the sense, so, you know, Christmas time is opportunity to put those skills back to use. But it really was, I think, the reason why I, I really enjoyed pharmacy was because you actually were part of people's lives it wasn't just in illness it was a lot of things and I think that's why a lot of community pharmacists and I understand pharmacy you know goes across a wide range of places but as a community pharmacist I felt really connected to the people that I was in service to and that was my community. And how important is that community and that connectedness especially as it relates to Indigenous well-being and, and health? I think it's so it's a critical part of any relationship when you know a person not rather than a disease state or the medications that they're on. It becomes an opportunity, as I said, to have deeper conversations and deeper understanding of the totality. If there's stresses in their lives, if there's you know moments of joy, these can all have profound impact on how a person feels. And when they're able to feel like they can authentically share themselves with their health professionals, then it changes the way the health outcomes are seen and felt. Yeah, and, and feel valued as well, right? Yeah, I think that's all we all any human wants is when they're in a conversation and talking to somebody is that they're being heard yeah. and that the other person's actually listening not just hearing to respond it's are you hearing me are you listening to what i'm saying are you picking up the subtle cues of what i'm not saying as well 
Yeah, that's a very important point. And looking back through, Faye, I guess the accolades that you've achieved over the last, uh, seems like the last 10 years, certainly, but probably even even longer. And I I mean that in a nice way. I mean, 2019, New South Wales Aboriginal Woman of the Year, a number of other women's women of influence. There's all sorts of these accolades that are coming that you've achieved over your time. Tell us, what does that mean to you? And secondly, what changes do you think that you're most proud of over the last, you know, in your time in the sector, I guess, 20 years or so? First of all, I do have to say that, you know, whilst I'm the recipient of these awards, I'm not the sole person who has achieved them. Behind me has been family and community and friends and that, that have supported me to be able to do the work that I do. And it's they are just as much the recipients of any accolade that I have received. But I think what it has done is highlight we have come away, but we still have a way to go. And but I'm no longer by myself doing it, starting as the first pharmacist and then now surrounded by more surrounded by more health professionals across the board, surrounded by other people on the shoulders of giants we stand, mm. um, I think, you know, is a really true thing. And a couple of years ago, you know, the NAIDOC, because of her, I can. And I think that's a really, for me personally, there's been such strong women in my life that I have seen live through adversity, live through challenging times that at in moments are almost unfathomable. And so taking strength from those experiences and saying, I now have a responsibility. Now I've got to I've got to do something so that the next generation have something to do as well. Hopefully not the same things because hopefully we'll have learned the lessons we needed to learn in those moments and have moved on to well, what's the next step in the journey and where do we go from here? And, um, you know, recently um, the Australian Pharmacy Council did their um, Lloyd Sansom lecture and it was around the RAP and their integration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and perspectives into their strategy. And I was surrounded by other younger, not saying I'm old, but younger and, you know, really deadly Um, Aboriginal pharmacists and I made a post that I could rest easy that you know I know that there is a next generation that are there and that are willing to take that responsibility and do something with it that's a really soothing don't know if that's the right word but you know it, it is a soothing thought that there are others on the journey with you and that when you do need to step down or it is your time then there will be others. Is there anything that stood out to you as saying, oh, we've definitely made progress there? Um, I think, you know, there's a, there have been a number of things. Um, Indigenous Allied Health Australia as a peak body, that recognition of the allied health profession and the contribution it makes to the health and wellbeing of our communities is a really pivotal moment. I think certainly having more... Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the pharmacy profession for me. And that then makes sort of a wrap around because it creates for that health and wellbeing, mental wellness and all of those things that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people can see themselves in almost every profession that they engage with. And that's what we want. We want that sense of we belong 
with this group of people who are going to share my wellness or my journey with me. And that's a really important thing when you know that you could talk to somebody through, you know, using, you know, culture is really important to me and this is why that it's going to be heard and it's going to be actioned. You mentioned the Indigenous Allied Health Australia, which you're a founding member of. And I know you spent a number of years on the board and, and chair as well. But tell us, I mean, obviously that meant a lot to you, the fact that they had their own voice. You mentioned that was something you're very proud of, but just give us a bit of a bit of a quick summary around that and, and how's that going? Well, as um, you know, I'm still an active member of IHAR, and, but I think for me it was the opportunity to be with other like-minded Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people around We've got to do better, and I say that a lot. We've got to do better, and when we do better, we are better, we do better. That of raising the profile of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples across the different professions, and IHA represents more than probably what other allied health professions see as allied health professionals. Government has 14, ARPA has more but not as much as IHA who's around 22 different health professions that we classify as being part of the allied health family and that's the opportunity to transform lives using your profession and to be part of something like that you know with the other people that when we came together that very first time about we are so underrepresented and how do we actually get the voice of allied health from an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspective into the voice of allied health was a huge thing. But, you know, I suppose the last 10 years have shown us that stop being afraid of asking the questions because sometimes you just need the right person. So when you ask the question and when it's the right person, it'll be a yes. I think the other part is actually planning for when somebody says yes because that's the other part you can have a wish list but the minute somebody says yeah I can help you do that you go oh well what's the next steps and I think they're the bits that we've learned along the way which is there are great allies there are great champions out there that are willing to be on a journey with us and so when we ask a question of can you we really need to be prepared for the yes would you say that's been one of the most challenging parts of that is trying to get the traction and knowing what in what order to do which steps now that you've got the opportunity? Yeah, I often liken it to brain-acquired head injury of really constantly banging your head against the brick wall or the door just for somebody to hear you and say, come on in. And then as you say, it's just, well, what's the next step? Well, the door gets opened. You then place right or left foot and walk through. and. But it is, it's been along behind every success, there's been thousands of rejections, thousands of, yeah. you know, failed conversations with not the right people. It's really interesting. And I, and I know, Faye, reading up on, you know, the most recent appointment that you've, that you've had is one of the two deputy commissioners and playing a key role with federal government. Tell us about that role and what that means to you. As a country, I think Australia has some really significant opportunities and the recognition that for this country, rural and remote communities do deserve our best. We provide that everywhere 
else. So it should be provided to people in rural and regional and remote and very remote Australia. So when the federal government founded the commission or the office of the National Rural Health Commission, then it was a pivotal moment to understand that we can't keep doing the same thing. And then I think from that was the recognition that we actually do need to be more inclusive in regards to what are the services and who are the people in those professions that are required to deliver services in a meaningful way. And hence, you know, two deputy commissioners were appointed to say, well, two back to government. These are the real pivotal professions that you need to be in rural and remote Australia providing services to communities that are representative of the needs from the community. So as a Deputy Commissioner, I'm really mindful of, again, that responsibility I have. I occupy potentially two opportunities within the Office of the Commissioner, which is to provide the Allied Health Voice, but to also provide the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice alongside of the peaks. So I'm not the sole voice to the Commission and the work of the Commission, but it is all of our responsibility. And when we work collectively together, that's when we see change. And I have to say, Professor Stewart is an outstanding advocate of understanding how do we work meaningfully, culturally safe in a responsive way with all of our communities and working alongside of the other deputy commissioner. I mean, it just reinforces to me every day that there are always opportunities and you have to sometimes take them. The other part that is great is that we're all women and we all have bring a different lens and which it will change. The previous commissioner was a male and but I think it's what's right in the moment and we're through in a moment of really trying to understand what it is we need on the back of multitude of natural drought, floods, fires, and now an international global pandemic, that it is getting on and getting the job done. Yeah, well, I mean, two focus points. If we start at the first one, they talk about access to rural health services. Tell us about the equality that you're going for there and, and the challenges of people that do live in rural and remote areas as it relates to health and wellbeing? The equality that we're going for there is obviously that every Australian has the access to the services they need when they need them. And when we say every Australian, we mean that irrespective of your geography. What we do know is that we do need to look at how we deliver those services very differently in regional, rural and remote Australia because it is different. We know that. It's the challenge is trying to meet the needs of every unique community in a way that provides them with the services they want, being mindful of how we deliver them. And that becomes very much part of a multidisciplinary team, understanding how collectively we can all add pieces to the jigsaw puzzle that gives a complete picture for the person and the people in our communities in regional, rural and remote Australia. So that's what we're aiming to do is say we don't need to have exactly the same 
services delivered in the same way as what's happening in urban areas. Mm. But what we need to have is an understanding of when we need those services, how do we access them? And obviously distance is always an issue. What we have is an understanding of not every health professional is able to operate in regional, rural and remote Australia, does so through a government-funded position. So how do we support private practices? So it's a multitude of things, but at the centre of this is every Australian who lives and works in regional, rural and remote Australia having the opportunity to have a life that is meaningful, that allows them to flourish both health and wealth, and I don't mean wealth as in money. I think it's those wealthy things that when we say we're wealthy, it's connectedness, it's being free from unwellness and having your, having your needs met when and where. And people living in rural and remote areas tend to have poor health outcomes, don't they, compared to those in metropolitan areas. So access is critical, like you said, and it's great to see that the the people are at the heart of what's going on so that helps shape the design of of how things and services need to be delivered. But tell us, secondly, around the addressing the rural workforce, because that's another big challenge that we have. What are you finding with that? And moving forward into the future, how do you see the role of of the workforce and, and how it can grow? Probably one of the most challenging opportunities in front of us. And it is an opportunity, though. But what we need to do, I think, is shake and rattle the cage a bit so for people to feel dislodged from what they think is the way you should approach provision of health services or you know, how to access health professionals. So when we unsettle it, and as I spoke a bit before about you know, the jigsaw puzzle, if we toss the jigsaw puzzle back up and we say, okay, we want it to actually look differently, but we still need all of these pieces. It's that opportunity to read it, to lay it out again. And the challenge is the attraction, how we attract and retain people to stay in regional and rural Australia. What we do know is that if we can actually pick the interest of, of regional and rural Australians before they make a choice as to their career, then the opportunity to have them in the professions becomes greater and how we support them going through universities, through placement opportunities, having meaningful placement opportunities for for them to see the richness of rural and remote living and being connected to communities are really critical parts. And there are across the medical, nursing and allied health areas, there's a lot of great evidence that tells us that these are things when they're done right make a huge difference and our educational providers need to step up as well to go you know what you actually are part of a multidisciplinary team this you are a solo practitioner yep that's part of it but when you create a team where people feel included their expertise and knowledge is valued then the people at the centre of who we are providing services for become so much more enriched. So when we actually rely on each other or have courageous conversations of, I'm a little unsure, is there somebody out there that's willing to support me to move into this? Then I think we've got an opportunity to harness a lot of goodwill 
but move that goodwill beyond that too. These are some really stellar outcomes for our community. Would you also agree um, providing like like access to education to the communities that are already out there? Because you would think it would be easier to train up and educate you know, the existing communities that are there rather than trying to convince people to leave metropolitan areas to come out. Do you think that's a big part of it is trying to retain those populations and stop the the leaking Most definitely. bucket? Yeah. You know, that, as I said, that's, that's what we're starting to see is that if we can get out and get into, be visible, so, you know, these connected um, connections between educational providers, and I mean that from every sector, from VET, all the way across into the higher education sector. We need health professionals to see themselves in their communities. And when that happens and they're able to learn the skills and develop the knowledge that they need to work, they are more likely to go back to their communities because they understand the value of what they will bring back once they've received that education. And as I said, that goes across from allied health assistants to, you know, disability workers, you name it. We have the opportunity to look at our workforce very differently and how we support them very differently. In order to create that meaningful, lasting change, how important is it for that collaboration, you know, within allied health, but also other sectors as well, to make sure that we try and and bring everybody together and take that holistic approach. I mean, how important is that, especially as it relates to Indigenous health and wellbeing? I think they're the lessons that lots of organisations, professions can actually learn from First Nations people is when you put the collective at the centre of this, that you actually can start to change and you know transform. So I think they're the bits that we can actually go, you know what, when we do that, when we put a holistic lens on it, we can actually have different conversations than what we do independently with people who are exactly like us, well, you know, when you talk about profession. So a podiatrist talking to a podiatrist will yeah. use a specific set of language, whereas a podiatrist talking to you know, a multidisciplinary team will nuance their language so that everybody understands where their space is in trying to work with that particular area of concern or how do we meet that but often it's not just about meeting those physical needs it's about meeting the psychological and the mental health needs and all of that that we go okay that's just one component and when we truly listen to what are the important things to the person who is in part of that multidisciplinary team receiving care we've got to go we've got to think of the whole person if somebody's worried that something's happening back home in the community and people aren't struggling, their ability to get well becomes more challenged. So we've got to go, what are the things that you need so you can fully invest in your own health journey? And that might mean putting some other parameters in place, engaging with other professionals that will go, okay, well, how do we wrap around support to the entire family so that this, you know, the person who is medically unwell can start to receive the care they need, feeling confident that everything else that they are worried about is also being taken care of. It, it certainly makes sense. And Faye, one of the things I, I read a quote that you said was, we need to work on the moral health of our society. The growing divide between have and have not is real. Tell us about that. Um, I think this really became apparent 
I was very fortunate to be part of the Atlantic Fellows for Social Equity here in Australia and that joins with the Atlantic Institute, so a larger group, that we were actually talking about financial audits. Companies and organisations go undergo a financial audit that makes sure that they're fit for business, they're able to practice, all of those things. And I actually went, well, why aren't we doing a moral audit? Why aren't we looking at, are they actually fit for practice across the totality? Because, you know, somebody requires care, isn't concerned about are they above or below the bottom line in the red or the black. They don't care. It's can they deliver services, but can they deliver services that are culturally safe? Can they deliver services that are responsive to their complete needs? And, you know, we just spoke about that, Sam, about what are the things that I need to start to feel I can be on my own journey. But it's we see it still today that, you know, what 1% of the world's richest people control 90% of the resources or something. It's the divide is there and it is real. You know, when people go, oh, it's only $2 or it's only a couple of dollars, that's great when you've got it. But when you don't, not only is it you can't get the services that you need, it's then mentally you start to question your own value and your own worth because I can't do that what's wrong with me, it then starts a spiral of we just need to go, okay, where are our moments? And I think every human has that opportunity to stop and go, where, am I, where is my moment to do something? And almost every person can. No, it's a, it's a good point. And, and even if we had all the money as well, because it is more than just throwing money at it as well, isn't it? Like it's, oh, yeah. that certainly won't solve the problem. And I think, you know, they're the lessons that we've learned in this country and around the globe with First Nations people. It's not just about money. People often go, oh, it's all about the money. And, you know, money is one part of a solution. There are multiple parts of opportunities to change narratives. The apology was one example of a step on a road. So how this nation could reconcile itself with its history. The Black Lives Matters movement is another moment of opportunities for Australia to reconcile itself against its history and its current status. These are all parts that we go, we can do better and we should. Tell us about the impacts COVID-19 has shown us, you know, as it relates to Indigenous health and wellbeing. Have you you seen uh, the impact on rural and remote communities and, and what that's had on them? I think, you know, again... We don't know what we don't know, and as we move forward, we're learning every day. But the opportunity to hear from communities about what it is that they need to feel safe in this environment. So what we saw was the community-controlled health sector go hard and fast in working with communities to say, okay, what do we need to do to make sure that COVID doesn't get here? Because if it gets here... What's our opportunity to respond? And I think that's the difference for many people trying to understand why there's restriction on movements or why there was certain mandates for vaccines to be delivered to different population groups at different times. Because our ability to respond to something, if it got into a remote community, we don't have the resources that a large urban 
or metropolitan centre has. So, you know, when we were talking about does Australia have enough ventilators if we actually received the worst case scenario? And the answer was we would be challenged, but we would be even more challenged if that was to go into a community and even if 10, 15% of the community required care, that it's not there. You know, there's not the ventilator. There isn't the full medical workforce that's required to provide the level of care that we knew would be required to effectively support somebody going experiencing COVID. So they're the reasons why those decisions were made. They're the reasons why many decisions are continuing to be made around ensuring remote and very remote communities are being provided with opportunities to protect themselves as best they can and as best as the government can provide to them as well. As we move forward, what do you think are going to be some of the bigger challenges coming up in the next sort of year or two as it relates to the rural and remote communities and health? I think what we do know is that whilst we have large pockets of our communities Broadly, very broadly, as 80 to 90% fully immunised. We don't have all of our communities in that boat. What we're knowing today is that Atagi will have difficult or challenging opportunities being presented to them through global evidence around pushing forward boosters and that as to whether we go three months, we stay at six months. And if that's happening, then... Who, who's being prioritised, how quickly are we able to get boosters out. This is still a moving feast that we need to go. We can't rest on how good we've been at the response that we have had to COVID. And, yes, it's challenged a lot of people's lives and it's challenged certainly a lot of the mental health and wellness for people. But the rate of death, the rate of infection in this country compared to other places we did some things right. We we didn't do everything right. But come this Christmas, that there will be lots of people who will be able to share, even through, you know, virtual, but Christmas or the festive season with loved ones that potentially may not have been the case had we not responded the way we had. Tell us about what your future holds for you. What exciting things have you got coming on? If I be flippant as a single mother of two teenage boys, well, <laughs> that's going to um, challenge me. And I think that's just it, is how do you maintain the energy? And we've seen that with through, you know, frontline workers and that that this isn't over and we've still got to keep pushing. And so how do you fill a cup that's potentially got a few leaks and you could pour into it and it's still going to be a little leaky and not um, quite get back to, you know, half full or full in the near future? And I think... I often say it comes back to we just need to learn to be kinder, A, to ourselves, but to each other, except that people may have bad days, except that there will be moments of I can't, but somebody else will pick you up. And I think as a nation, there are bits that we have done well together in difficult times, and I would like us to see that carried forward because we're still in difficult times. Mm. You know, we haven't come out the other end from the pandemic yet and we're still responding to how do we change the inequalities and how do we respond to the inequities that we know exist when the pandemic um, becomes something of a distant memory. 
Yeah, it certainly feels like we're going to have still some time to deal with the pandemic and it's definitely not behind us. But, but Faye, thanks so much for sharing your story with us and your journey and we appreciate the time. And yeah, thanks very much for joining us. Mamungu, everyone. I hope that you all stay safe and that as we come up to this festive time that you have the opportunity to fill your cup somewhere with the people that bring a smile to your face and that know love you unconditionally. So thank you for having me. Beautifully said. Thanks, Faye. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.